So Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, Anaphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all his saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Thanks, Lauren. All right. Well, as we kick off, let me ask this question. Who are your relations? Who comes to mind when someone asks you, hey, who are you related to? Now, take a look around the room. Did any of the folks sitting here with you come to mind? Well, we'll explore that a little bit more as we go. But as I mentioned earlier, we are going to spend the next three weeks looking at this book of Philemon. 
And as we do, I hope that we will rediscover, or perhaps discover for the first time, a big idea that permeates right through this book, and in fact, the whole Bible. And that is that God's people are a family. And that that fact has implications for the way in which we interact with each other within the church. So that the church will be a way, will be the way in which God's people are made known to each other and to the world. So, as we kick off, let me pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be gathered together this morning as your people. We pray that as we look at this small book, you would speak to our hearts and that we will be drawn closer into relationship together and with you, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as uh, Lauren mentioned, Philemon is a very short book. As you've just read, you've read the whole thing um, in one go, and we'll read the whole book every week for the next two weeks after today. 25 verses all up, and uh, I think around 335 words in the Greek. But it's not the shortest book uh, in uh, the Bible. 3 John and 2 John are first and second in that race. Philemon comes third. So it's a, it's a close race, though. This is a letter from Paul, and it's principally addressed to a man by the name of Philemon. Unlike many of Paul's letters, this one is not primarily addressed to a specific church. Although the church that meets in Philemon's home is included in the addressees and were, altogether, the recipients of the letter. Probably, as the way these things happened, having it read out in their presence when it was, when it was received. But, but still, this is a very personal letter, and it's quite interesting in that regard. Addressed to an individual and keenly focused on encouraging the restoration of a relationship between him, Philemon, and another member of that local church. Specifically, Philemon, the wealthy homeowner, and incredibly, one of his slaves, or bond servants, as it's rendered, named Anesimus. The fact that a church met in Philemon's home, as we see in verse 2, indicates he was doing pretty well for himself. He, he had one of the big homes. He was a place that people could come to and, and use his space. And he clearly at least had one bondservant. We don't know how many others. But uh, mind you, as we, as we go into this, that was pretty normal to see in Roman households of the day, which is something that we will, in fact, touch on some more perhaps next week. The letter itself doesn't tell us where Philemon and his church was located. I guess it probably didn't really need to in the context, considering the letter was addressed to Philemon, and Onesimus knew who he was and where his house was, and he lived there. But when we read this letter, alongside the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, we do appear to find our answer. In that letter... In Colossians 4, verse 9, Paul identifies that Onesimus, Philemon's runaway bondservant, is a faithful 
and beloved brother who is one of you. That is from Colossae. So we find that Philemon's household and those who joined with them as a local church in his home were part of the church in Colossae. And as we'll see, this is supported by a couple of other references as we come, al- as we come along them. But as we've just read, it's not just Philemon and Onesimus that Paul identifies in his letter. In fact, as he writes from his cell, speaker has... In fact, as he writes from his cell, Paul lists a large number of people across the text of this single page. Well, not even a full page, it's like a chunk of the page. And there are 11 people all up in this brief uh, account. But it's the way in which these, this, this group of people are described that provides our series title, Church as Family, as you saw at the start. This week, we're considering not that, and we're lost. We're considering family relations. (laughs) Next week, we'll dig down into that a bit and explore our family love. And in the last week, we'll look at family forgiveness. But for now, family relations. While I'm going to grab from other areas of letter as we go, and a lot from, one, uh, from Colossians as well, um, we're going to focus our attention this week on the first seven verses of the letter and the last three, verses uh, 20, uh, 23 to 25. And I'm going to uh, address those sections, those um, uh, verses with these three headings. That God's family is prayerful and encouraging. So, let's start at the top. God's family. The the letter kicks off, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. It's a very inclusive opening, isn't it? And particularly interesting when you consider that there's nowhere in Scripture that, Paul has, uh, that shows us that Paul has ever made it to Colossae. He's obviously hopeful to get there at the time of writing, as we see in verse 22. And Philemon and his church appear to be hopeful for this too, praying with Paul that Paul may be graciously given to them. But he hasn't been to Colossae at this point. So, we have this inclusive Uh, introduction of of a group of people in Colossae. And who do we meet? Other than Paul, we have Timothy, our brother. And I think, more literally translated as the brother. Al gives an easier way of understanding what he means. But the brother. (laughs) This is, of course, one and the same man as uh, the recipient of the letters of 1 and 2 Timothy. Timothy joined with Paul on his second round of missionary journeys to various locations one of which was in Ephesus. And Ephesus is the region, uh, is the capital of the region of Asia Minor, which is where Colossae is located. And kicked off his journey with Paul from Lystra. And you can have a look at that in Acts 16 if you're interested. 
Timothy is regularly in Paul's letters and was likely one of Paul's closest companions and the next tier, really, of church leaders following in his footsteps as Paul followed Christ. And you might remember from, very early, from our very early series, it's a long way back, in 1 Corinthians, the endearing description that Paul gives uh, Timothy in 1 Corinthians 4.17. He describes him as his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. They obviously had a very deep and good relationship. So that's Timothy, the brother. Next, we have Philemon. And we'll get to know him over the next few weeks as we explore this letter. And he doesn't show up anywhere else in the Bible. Despite the fact that Paul has not been to Colossae, Philemon is described as our beloved fellow worker. It would seem that at least Paul and possibly Timothy and some of the others have spent some time together with Philemon. Presumably somewhere else in Asia Minor. Paul hasn't been to Colossae yet. Possibly while they were in Ephesus. And for their time in Ephesus, you can check out Acts 19. It doesn't reference Philemon, but that's when they were in Ephesus. As we read on in the letter, in verse 19, we find that it's very likely that Paul's ministry was, in fact, the way that Philemon himself came to Christ. You see that in verse 19? And Paul considers him, too, to be a brother. And we see that in verse 7. Further, the closeness of this beloved fellow worker and brother is described in verse 17, where Paul notes Philemon to be his partner in his work. So these guys have, again, a good working relationship. They know each other, and they know each other well. Next is a fear, described as our sister. It seems likely that she was Philemon's wife, though, of course, we can't be sure of that. And next, Archippus, described as our fellow soldier, a term interestingly, interestingly also used by Paul in his letter to the Philippians for a fellow known as Abaphroditus in Philippians 2.25. Archippus may have been the son of Philemon and Aphia or some other close relative in their home, but he clearly had some solid character traits. Fellow soldier, indicating things like loyalty, discipline and courage in the face of opponents. An ally in the spiritual battle that was Paul's missionary life. And obviously Paul was in prison, so he was facing, and as we read right through the New Testament, he faced quite an opposition as he proclaimed the gospel. In the book of Colossians, in Colossians 4.17, the church there is specifically reminded to say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. What that specifically is remains tantalizingly unknown. <laughs> but what a great encouragement it must have been to have the whole Christian community of Colossae, not to mention his own local church, cheering Archippus on in his calling for the Lord. 
And this, mind you, is another one of those references pointing to Philemon's house being in Colossae. As I read this, it was, I was reminded of a, a, a video I saw some time ago, and I looked it up and found it still exists on YouTube. But it's, it's a young Japanese boy. It's just a home video in a, some sort of gymnastics class or something. But he's attempting to springboard over a high box. It's taller than him. He makes a couple of attempts, fails. He's getting more and more upset. He's been sent back to do it again and again. He tries a third time and he fails again. Before he starts his run for the fourth jump, a group of his peers spring up, run down onto the mat, surround him, chant with him, give him a big encouragement, and then go back and sit down in their group. He runs up and clears it nice and clean, encouraged, spurred on by his little friends. I just thought it was a great picture, and it just reminded me of this when we read about Archippus and, and the church saying, Archippus, do the work that God has called you to do, cheering him on. So in our opening two verses, we have Paul inclusively describing Aphia as the sister of Timothy, Philemon, Archippus, and himself. And of course, they as Aphia's and each other's brothers. And Archippus receiving this special, and I can imagine emboldening description, probably with a fist pump, fellow soldier. But that is not the end of the list. Certainly the bulk of the rest of the letter focuses in and addresses Philemon specifically. But as Paul rounds out his letter from verse 23, he returns to introduce some more of the family, drawing Philemon even further into a great group of God's people who are encouraging him in what he is being called to do throughout the rest of the letter. Reminiscent, I think, of the, that cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12, verse 1. The first of these is Epaphras. He's described, similarly, as a fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus with Paul. And he sends his greetings, along with Paul, to Philemon and his church. Now, if you've read Colossians, this would come as no surprise that Epaphras is sending his greetings. Because in Colossians 1 verse 7, it's made clear that Epaphras was in fact the person who evangelized the Colossian church, teaching them the gospel, allowing them to understand the grace of God in truth, as verse 6 says. And in Colossians 4 verse 12, it says that Epaphras, who is one of you, and he's a servant of Christ Jesus, that he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul goes on to assure the church that Epaphras has worked hard for them in that labor of prayer. Another, no doubt, deep encouragement to Philemon and the church, being reminded of one of their own brothers, himself now in prison for the gospel, along with Paul, who holds their community dear, and continues to uphold them in prayer, despite his circumstances. And finally, we have four men named and described as fellow workers, just as Philemon is described, drawing them again all together in this work of the Lord. Mark, also mentioned in uh, Colossians in 4 verse 10, a man who they, were, who they were reminded to prepare for and to welcome him if he comes, as you'll see. little note. Paul sends along in, to the church in, Colossians, uh, in Colossae. 
Aristarchus, who's also mentioned by Paul in Colossians 4 verse 10. Demas, mentioned by Paul in Colossians 4 14, and who we'll actually come back to at the end of this morning. And Luke, the doctor and author of the Gospel of Luke and of Acts, also, again, mentioned by Paul in Colossians, in very caring terms, as the beloved physician. This group of fellow workers, brothers and sisters, was close and committed to one another. In the middle of the book, we meet the other man, the other main subject of the rest of the letter, Anesimus. As we've read, and as I mentioned earlier, Anesimus was one of Philemon's slaves. And after leaving Philemon's home, presumably AWOL in some way, absent without leave, and after meeting up with Paul, he was turned around and sent back to make amends. A very, very daunting task for a slave at that time, to be sure. Consequences for, for runaway slaves could be um, being given sort of collars to wear that said who you were belonged to and, and all sorts of other beatings and unkind things. And so we'll focus more on, on that idea next week as we look at um, family love. But it's the way in which Paul describes Anesimus in verse 10, which I think is quite striking. Paul describes Anesimus as his child, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, of course, Paul is not meaning actual parentage, just as he didn't mean he was the actual father of Timothy in the references we've looked at earlier. Maybe Epaphras brought them together, having recognized Onesimus as one of Philemon's bondservants around wherever Paul was. Perhaps Onesimus sought Paul out because of his relationship with Philemon, seeking some sort of mediation between the two. Perhaps it was just a providential encounter. Again, the possibilities are endless and we just don't know. How they come together, we'll need to ask on the other side of eternity. One of those things you add to the list. But what is clear is when Onesimus met up with Paul during Paul's imprisonment, Onesimus became a Christian. In verse 16 then, Paul describes him as a beloved brother in the Lord and commends him to Philemon in the same way. Noting that Philemon now had the benefit of Onesimus not only in the Lord, as Paul did, recognizing this reality of the, the universal church and that they would be and are brothers together, but in the flesh too. That is, Philemon had him in person, there and then within his local church. Now, as I said, we'll look at this relationship more over the coming weeks. But the important thing to notice for now is that this bondservant, this slave, is also included in the description of the family. This family dynamic that is being created is no simple feat. This would have been an outrageous thing to say at the time. But as we move through the letter, we'll see how the opening reminder to Philemon of what the family of God looks like, as we've just explored, right up front, 
before incorporating Onesimus into into that description is such a clever and, in fact, helpful way for Paul to proceed. If Colossians and Philemon were sent out from Paul together, Onesimus has possibly traveled with with Tychicus, as we see in 4 verse 9. Um, who was also uh, sorry, who has who has delivered uh, the letter of Colossians to the to the Colossians, and in that letter again, Philemon uh, Onesimus is described as a beloved brother as well. So that's the crew, that's the family that we meet. This is the the people of God that have come together with Paul in the gospel. And of course, while Paul is a big part of how these people find themselves together, he does not, as we'll see, credit himself as bringing them all together himself. Jews and Gentiles, slave and free alike. There is one final name that is mentioned in this family, and his name is mentioned almost as many times as there are other names. Jesus Christ, the Lord The Lord Jesus, or Christ, are referenced ten times in this very short letter. And right from the very beginning, in verse 1, where Paul emphasizes that it is his work for Christ that has led to his imprisonment. And then we'd have to read pretty much the rest of the book again to get all the other references. So I'll let you find them as you go through. Paul wants to make very clear that it is Jesus who brings this group of people into relationship together. And most importantly, as we see in verse 3, into family with God as its Father. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is how Paul intros. Now this is not an unusual salutation by Paul in in many respects. It shows up in, in many of his letters. And you may have noticed that the grace of the Lord Jesus actually forms the bookends of the letter. So at the end, he exits with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, be with your spirit. And when we look at this letter as a whole, particularly with the regular focus on Christ and his work in the life of Philemon and how this plays out in the life of the church, the grace of the Lord takes on a crucial role in the understanding of this book. In effect... The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is the material on which the the great embroidered picture of the church as the family of God, this picture that Paul presents in this letter, is woven into. Embroidery, such as on my shirt, allows a picture to be highlighted on a chosen fabric. But unlike the basic embroidery on my shirt, embroidery is a craft or art form that decorates an item of fabric and presents a beautiful product. But without the fabric, the thread would just look like a bunch of twisted, colourful strings. So too, without the grace of the Lord Jesus, the threads of this amazing picture of a family, the individuals named from all sorts of walks of life, brought together, would most certainly go their separate ways. Likely, even never entertaining the possibility of being united with one another in the first place. This grace really is the hook 
on which the rest of what happens in this letter hangs. And ever since the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, rejecting his perfect rule and suffering the consequences of removal from God and his goodness, and his good and perfect peace that was present in the garden, humanity has been at enmity with God. Humanity has been hostile to God, seeking to live for its own glory and not that of its creator. Of course, in seeking to restore his creation from this terrible yet justified outcome, God drew out for himself a people from among the kingdoms of men. God made covenants with them, promises to be their God and to bless them if they followed his commands. And with that, the concept of God's family came about with God as the Father. And it became a key message that permeated and permeates right through the Bible, from Abraham and on through Isaac and Jacob to King David and the kings of Israel that followed, throughout the Psalms and, and through the, to the prophets. But the recurring problem, as we've seen, as we've looked at kings and as we've looked at uh, Daniel, the recurring problem throughout it all was that the people of God, his children, continued to struggle to maintain their allegiance to him. Throughout this time, mankind's sinful self-interest continued to be clear. And as did their clear need for a saviour. And of course, that saviour was Jesus, the Christ, as God's own son, who lived the perfect life that we could not, and in our place, died the death that we deserved. And so he freed us. And all those who would accept his death and resurrection for themselves, from the consequences of our sinful rebellion, eternal removal from the goodness of God. This saving work of Jesus, unmerited by his people that he came to save, an act of mercy, a gift of grace, is the great good news of the gospel that we've been singing about this morning. And of course, if you're hearing this message this morning and don't know this gift of grace for yourself, you, you can. <laughs> Jesus offers it freely for all those who would call upon his name in faith and repentance. That is choosing to turn away from life lived for yourself and choosing to live for God and his glory. Please, if that's you, talk to one of us this morning if you want to know more about that. And as with each of us, each of the people named in this letter this morning, including Paul, were separated from God, because of their active decisions to live their lives for themselves and not for God's glory. They were enemies of God, in conflict with him and in need of his peace. But when they received Jesus' gracious gift of forgiveness for themselves through the work of the Holy Spirit, they demonstrated their inclusion as being part of those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, as Paul said to the church in Corinth. That is the grace that Paul bookends this letter with, referring to God the Father's goodness and redemptive work through Christ. Grace and peace, the free gift of God, bringing us reconciliation with him 
and consequently with each other. Becoming grateful, contributing members of his church, the body, recognizing our reconciliation with God and demonstrating that peace we have found with each other in reverence for Christ. And in light of what the context of the letter is about, it's certainly an important place for Paul to kick off the letter. Particularly as things unfold and he makes his request to Philemon to consider forgiveness of his runaway slave. Peace with God had to be the reference point for that and must be for us too as we consider such things. Forgiveness of each other. And as I said, we'll look at that in a couple of weeks. Now, in letters like this, it's easy, isn't it, just to kind of read over these names and their descriptions and think, yeah, well, okay, it seems like Paul knew some people, they did some stuff together, so now let's just you know, get onto the content. But it, as we've seen, there's no accident that Paul includes all of these people and describes them the way that he does. This great picture of unity of God's people, the family of God, gives us a picture of what our life in the church should look like too. Because the family of God continues as it did throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament and on to us today. And so when I asked the question at the beginning about who comes to mind for you when someone asks who your relatives or relations are, did anyone actually think of the members of their church? It's rhetorical, you don't have to answer. If you did think of us, was it simply intellectual assent of that reality because of what the Bible says? I mean, we've talked about it a lot, obviously, as a church. We talk about membership. We talk about what the family looks like, that we come together, that we commit to each other, that we covenant together. Or, if you did think of us as family, were the images that come to mind more like the descriptions of the people in our passage today for you? Now, I, I admit, it's not always the, the place that I would go. Someone asks, well, my aunties are, you know, Auntie Belle, you know, Auntie, <laughs> my uncle's in Adelaide, my family elsewhere. And as I've reflected on this passage, I think the basic reason we don't, or don't always, or at the very least struggle at times to think about each other as family, continues to be our own sinful self-interest, as was the problem right from the beginning. As we continue to be changed as Christians more and more into the likeness of Christ throughout our life, that is, as we are continue to be sanctified, and as we look forward to the completion of that work in glory when Christ returns, we will continue to struggle, it's a reality, with the effect of sin in our lives. God has a good plan for his people, so our adversary, our sin and our fallen humanness wages war against it. Our sin causes us to forget quite readily that we are a family. Causes us to live inwardly focused lives. And as a consequence, we fail to live out God's plan for the church to be a family. And we miss out often on the God-given benefits that that creates. So it's no surprise, I think, that Paul, before setting out his challenging news, right at the start, 
gives us the vital method required for us to be able to see this family work. And that is prayer. So, we find that God's family is prayerful. The book goes on from verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. From here, Paul turns his attention directly to Philemon. And you can imagine, if it's being read out, the church is there, the reader is looking now at Philemon, talking to him. And the you becomes singular in the letter. And as Paul opens, he tells Philemon that he does two things when he remembers him in prayer. He thanks God for him, and he asks that God would work through him. Paul writes that whenever he remembers Philemon in his prayers, I always thank my God. And you might note that this is a, another subtle nod to the very personal relationship that Paul and we have with God, our Father. We can go to him in thanks. We can thank him for things. And we can go to him in prayer because Paul also prays that the sharing of Philemon's faith may become effective. And of course, he goes on to describe that by reflecting on these things, he derives much joy and comfort from Philemon, his brother. Because the hearts of the saints, other people within the church, have been refreshed through him. It's quite an interesting word, isn't it? Refreshed. Are we refreshing for each other? Paul must have been a prolific prayer, though, hey? Because in his letters, he often references his prayers for the churches and people that he is writing to. And really, if we are to see our church look like a healthy family of God, then we must be prolific prayers, too. So let's look at this first point. What is it that Paul always thanks God for when he remembers Philemon in prayer? Well, it's his love and faith that he has towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. Now, Paul usually refers to faith before he refers to love in his letters. After all, Jesus himself said in John 13, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's only love that springs out of our faith, recognizing Christ's love for us, that is truly effective to draw people to God, and not just to ourselves as nice people. And so Paul usually starts with faith, and then moves to love. But on this occasion, Paul puts love in front of faith. Now, the commentators seem to generally agree that this is not an attempt at Paul saying that he had, as it were, a love and a faith in all the saints, because that doesn't really make much sense. But rather, it's a clever rhetorical device called a chiasm, where love relates to the saints and faith to the Lord Jesus in the A, B, B, A formula. 
Another reading of faith, though, is that it allows, uh, that allows it to make more sense, perhaps, is to read it as faithfulness. So that Paul was thankful for Philemon's love and faithfulness to the saints as a result of his love and faith in Christ. Look, in either way, the usual effect of Paul's commendation of faith in Christ is maintained. But love for the saints is emphasized. And both ways of reading the passage show that Paul considers that faith in Jesus and love for the saints must be intimately intertwined. It's not one without the other, it's both. And as we, and as we will see, it's an important linchpin for Paul to, to address right at the front too. Reflecting on this passage, though, got me thinking about my own prayer life. <laughs> First of all, I was reminded to be praying for you all regularly. As elders, we, we do this at our fortnightly meetings, uplifting you by name in prayer. But how well do I do that on my own? Certainly not at the level of Paul, as I reflect on what, how he describes his prayer life. Now, providentially, if you get our church email, you'll have noticed that there was a reference to the Church Centre app that was starting to use. So um, that has a list of our church members in it. It might be a helpful reference point for you to do just this, to be able to see and remember who uh, gathers with us regularly. Add to that. Build. Make a list. Write down who you're praying for. And then pray regularly. But secondly, it got me thinking particularly about how I remember you in my prayers. If our prayers were written out for public reading like Paul's, what would, they, what would they say about our relationships here at Emmaus Road with our brothers and sisters? Oh Lord, would you please just change Josh's attitude? He can be so selfish at times. God, please just give me the strength to get through another conversation with... Blankety blank. Is that what they would look like? Is that what people would see our relationships as being like? As you look around the room, as you think about who gather together as our church, what do you see? What do you think? What do you pray? Are you thankful for the love that your brothers and sisters show to you and others in the church? Or are you resentful of that? Do you share, if you are thankful, that thanks with God in prayer? I know many of you do. And I'm thankful for that. But I also know that it can be challenging to look at others and be thankful. Sometimes we see people who seem to do things better than us. Or we see people who seem to have it all together. We might see people sharing their time with multiple people in the church during the week while we seem to barely be able to keep our own home in order. And it can get us down. 
These are real feelings. And they are really good to recognize. But what does it do to our prayer life? What does our prayer life look like when we regularly see the church in that way? What might it look like if we turned those observations upside down with the help of the gospel? What if, instead of comparing ourselves to others, what if we looked first to Christ and his work for us on the cross? What if we recognized our need for him and then thanked God for the faith that we see being demonstrated, however that may be? Maybe it's only a small thing. Maybe there's only one thing you can be thankful for at the moment of what's happening in the church. I pray it's more, but maybe it's only one thing. What would happen if you started thanking God for that faith that you are seeing demonstrated through the loving work of our sisters and brothers of our family? How might that change our perspective? Paul was in prison, unable to do anything for anyone at the time other than write and share the gospel with whoever would happen to chance close by him, no doubt. Yet rather than be discouraged about what he felt that he was not able to do, he was instead encouraged by hearing about the love of the Christian community in action. Epaphras brought him news and he was brought joy. Paul heard about the way that Philemon lived as a Christian. How he opened his home to allow a local church to meet there because others couldn't. How he gave of his time and resources to people. A people who had suddenly been included in his life from across society despite the usual social barriers. Paul heard how the hearts of the saints were being refreshed by Philemon. And this gave Paul great encouragement even from prison, and he thanked God for him. And Paul prayed for Philemon. And as I looked, and as you have read, perhaps this prayer at first seems a little unusual. It's in uh, the verses that we've just read, verse uh, 6. He prayed that the sharing of Philemon's faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in them for the sake of Christ. Now, again, from my reading of the commentaries, it seems to, there seems to be some debate around particularly this idea of sharing. I understand that the word translated as sharing is actually the same word, koinonia, that is later translated in 17 as partner. And it's on that basis that it's generally agreed that what Paul is referring to here is not a sharing of his faith in an evangelistic sense, though, of course, as Jesus said, the effect of such sharing together will be evangelistic all the same if it's done in his name. But rather, Paul's emphasis in his prayer for Philemon is that his partnership with his brothers and sisters in the church would produce a more fulsome knowledge of what faith in Christ looks like and can achieve in the community of faith. To say it a different way, Paul prays that 
through the sharing of Philemon's faith in Christ with his church family, that he would be encouraged to see the outworking of that faith in his brothers and sisters as they likewise share their faith in Christ. What a helpful prayer to apply to our earlier observation that we sometimes struggle to be thankful when we look on and see our brothers and sisters' lives. What if we started to make this prayer a prayer for each other regularly? What if we not only thanked God for the love that we see being worked out in others, but also prayed that the outworking produced in us and in our brothers and sisters was a new appreciation of what it is to be in Christ? It then becomes a very helpful prayer for us. If we made this a regular part of our prayers for each other, maybe not only would our fearful comparisons of others be turned into a sense of joy and thankfulness to God in time, but perhaps it could also help us to appreciate life in the church, life in God's family in a new and exciting way. The Bible is deliberate in how it presents us as bodies, as organisms, as as living plants tied together, built together, all with different gifts. And so that leads me to my final point, that family relations help us see God's family is prayerful and encouraging. If Paul from prison could derive much joy and comfort from the love of his brothers and sisters from his cell, seeing that the hearts of the saints we're being refreshed through the lives of one another, how much more for us in our liberty, in our freedom? Let's pray like Paul for each other so that we too might experience this same encouragement. After all, doesn't Jesus say, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you in Matthew 7 verse 7. And later, as we've read in James more recently, You do not have because you do not ask. James 4, verse 2. Remember, brothers and sisters, God acts in response to prayer. As John Piper says in relation to these verses, the all-knowing, all-foreseeing, all-planning, all-governing God wills for your Christ-exalting prayers to be the occasion of his action. The all-knowing, all-foreseeing, all-planning, all-governing God wishes for your Christ-exalting prayers to be the occasion of his action. If we took this up for each other, maybe it would help us to be thankful when we see people being generous in the way in which they serve with their time in various ways at church or amongst the church community, making meals for each other, having people over, helping with each other's daily tasks in life. And rather than berating ourselves for our own apparent inadequacies, prayers like Paul may help us to recognize that even if we cannot do it at the time, we can still be encouraged by the fact that others are able. And when the time comes, God willing, we too can share our faith in this way with each other. Perhaps these prayers may cause us to praise God for a, for a sister we observe being able to read scripture and encourage someone with a timely word 
And it may help us not to be discouraged that we can't do that yet. But perhaps these prayers would allow us to be motivated to get into God's Word regularly and then see the opportunities that may present in the future as the Holy Spirit works through us. These prayers may give us an opportunity to be encouraged that someone perhaps with more life experience or Christian maturity than we have is able to understand and engage with someone uh, in a, uh, someone else at church, maybe over lunch, and to pray with them in a real and personal way. Rather than thinking we've nothing to add to a conversation or to a prayer and, and walking away, we might be encouraged to stay, to learn and to grow from what is being said by the other person. Being equipped, even if it is just to be inspired to have a conversation with someone at a later time. These prayers may allow us to experience joy when finding out that a brother is able to generously share and give in material ways that makes it possible for another brother or sister to, to get ahead. Not causing you to second guess your own finances or capabilities, as a result, or even hiding away your own struggles, but allowing it to challenge you to consider generosity within the resources God has entrusted you, but even allowing it to encourage you to reach out for help yourself without fear. Maybe it would be an encouragement, as we talked about last week in our evangelism efforts, to, to see someone else, to see Mark, for example, and see how he shares the gospel in his natural ways when he gathers with his peers. To, to engage with those things together. To go out with someone that does that so you can see it. It's interesting to read in Philemon, in light of the opening few verses in the book of Colossians again. Because it wasn't only Philemon that was an encouragement to Paul and Timothy. But as we read that letter to the Colossians, the gospel was bearing fruit in the outworking of love between the saints right across the Christian community in Colossae. And so, what about here at Emmaus Road? How are the family relationships that are described by Paul true for you in this church, or if you're visiting from a local church? In Paul's instructions to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 5 verse 1, he's told to, not to rebuke an older man, but to encourage him as you would a father, a younger man as brother, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. How can we live as a family of God, even in this small congregation, recognizing that we are all in this together for the sake of Christ? Not trying to be a foot that says to the eye, I don't need you. Or the hand that says, you know, I don't need to be a part of you. Some examples. We have lots of parents and children in our church. But have you wondered whether it shouldn't only be parents who are building into the lives of the children of our church? There are women and men who our children can look to as at least older brothers and sisters. But God willing, there will be stories in time where you will be able to say that you were a father or mother of children in our church in the Lord. 
that they will have felt so encouraged and built up in their discipleship by you that they will recognize themselves in the same way that Timothy or Onesimus did with Paul. Like Paul, you do not need to be a married parent for that to happen. People without children, are you interested in going along to a child's music recital and sitting through the noise to encourage one of the youngsters of our church? Would you attend a soccer practice or a basketball game to cheer on one of our kids? Would you attend um, a family birthday party, even if it was a bit Snorville? Would you sit with the children at lunch after the gathering or be interested in their art? Would you take the time to explain scripture to them? Would you let them see your faith in action? Parents with children, do you find opportunities to invite other people amongst our brothers and sisters along with you when you go about your busy schedule with your children? Between us as adults... How are you encouraging each other as brothers and sisters? Do you look only for engagement in each other's lives in ways that suit your life and your likes? Do you only associate yourself with your peers, ages or demographics, other demographics? Do you mostly spend time with people away from your church, for example? Why not invite some brothers and sisters from church along with you when you spend time with people outside the church? Create opportunities for people to see your love for one another in action. Are you willing to go out of your way to do things with others in this church, even if it is outside your comfort zone? Or a burden? Or something you would rather not do? At least to begin with. Maybe you like it. You never know. Do you take discipleship opportunities at all, in all areas of your life? Go for walks together. Help with each other's yard work. Invite people in to help you with your yard work, as mundane as that might be. But being bold and willing to say, hey, come and spend time with me. Not only in the shiny, polished times of a specific dinner party, but in the day-to-day life. Do we mind each other's children? Do we sit and talk with a parent while they sit through ice skating practice? Do we make cups of tea or lunch engagements work amongst our busy schedules in perhaps unorthodox times? Do we willingly and actively look for ways to share our faith with one another? And who do you see as being a fellow worker or a fellow soldier in the battle? Who are your encouragers? Who is standing by your side, encouraging you on in the work for Christ? Who do you turn to to share your hurts or fears? Who do you look to for encouragement? Who do you see as a partner in your work for the gospel? We saw a brief glimpse of what the Christian life might look like in community in Titus 2 this morning. Do we see and seek to live within the church in that way? 
Our passage today shows us that the shared love and faith in Christ that Christians enjoy, arising from Christ drawing us into relationship with Him in the Father, leads us to a deep and knowing love for the family of God that we gather with. That group of people, each the same, saved by the gracious work of Christ, is family regardless of who those people are individually and where they have come from. And this will be expressed in prayerful encouragement and affection for each other. The outworking will be that not only you and your church will be encouraged, but as we see, the wider Christian community will be brought joy to as they look on as Paul and Timothy and co. did with the church that met in Philemon's house. Imagine we could be an encouragement to other people that looked on at our church. And that would be an encouragement to other churches to do the same. And as Jesus said, our evangelism will be all the more effective as the world looks on and sees our love for one another because of his love for us. I guess it goes without saying that, importantly, we have to be able to maintain our faith, don't we, to be able to share that faith with each other. We have to maintain our trust in the gospel as a result. Uh, and like Philemon, we, we need to maintain it by, by engaging in the life of our church, keeping them by our side, reading scripture, gathering regularly together. Because it's easy for us to get tangled up in the doing of life, that we lose sight of the reason why we do it. I know, I, I get super busy. And if we lose sight of the gospel in all that busyness, slowly but surely, what was intended to be life-giving and joyful becomes for us a rod and a burden. The risk of not remaining focused on the gospel and not maintaining time in God's word, not engaging in regular prayer, results inevitably to our focus being shifted to the world because the world is noisy. It'll say, live for yourself. Take the time to be you. Don't give more than you're receiving. Make your goals a reality. This is our sinful default. We must wage war against this. And this is why we have fellow soldiers, people in the trenches with us, encouraging us, supporting us, brothers and sisters. I said at the start, we'd look at Demas a bit more. And Paul, I think, gives us an example of what happens or what can happen if we progressively live these inwardly focused lives and, and draw attention or, or, or get in, engaged in too much in the life of the world. Demas, who's listed in the group in verse 24... 
uh, is mentioned in 2 Timothy 4 verse 10 in this sad way. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. After professing faith, after being in Paul's inner circle and being part of his ministry, Demas wasn't immune from falling away and following the world. May we be a family of God that is prayerful and encouraging of one another. And may our encouragement as a result be of encouragement to the wider church community. And may we be a light to a world in desperate need of the gospel. Amen? Yeah. Well, I thought this week we would just move straight into communion from uh, the sermon. And as we wrap up this time in the Word, perhaps with the warning of Demas in our ears, and regular warnings in Scripture to flee from idolatry, we move to a time of communion together over the Lord's table. And then we'll spend some time reflecting in song and in prayer as we usually do.